helpful tools to combat against doubt last week, and you can always go back and, and listen to that sermon online. But essentially, if you and I are to overcome doubting hearts, we must find rest for our restless hearts. That is what we're going to attempt to do in the remainder of chapter 11 today. Mitch texted me this morning going, isn't it amazing that, so encouraging that Jesus was still for John after doubting? I'm like, yes. And I'm going to kind of skip over that. So why don't you talk about that this morning? Because we're going to go right into verse 20. Verse 20. Then Jesus began denouncing the towns where he had done so many of his miracles. Why? Because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. Here's what he says. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse, which was what they did in the Old Testament to show their remorse and repentance. I tell you, Jesus says, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on judgment day than you. Keep this in mind. These two cities are Old Testament cities that were so wicked that God destroyed them. He annihilated the entire city. That's how wicked they were. And Jesus says, they are better off on Judgment Day than those of you who refuse to repent of your sins. He goes on. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No. You will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did for you had been done in wicked Sodom, we know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? If I would have done these same things in their city, that city would still be here today. Why? Because they would have repented. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. Wow. These are some of the harshest words you will see Jesus say in all of his ministry. Because what we see early in Jesus' ministry is that people were more interested in his miracles than his majesty. People wanted the physical bread that he was offering to eat and to enjoy without actually receiving Jesus as their spiritual bread. In other words, they wanted the healing without honoring the healer. Essentially, what was happening is they wanted the love of the creator without submission to him. And it is natural. It is the natural leaning in human beings to want life without responsibilities and life without accountability. We want no authority over us. It's just the way we are from Genesis 3. The one thing we must come to believe about this text specifically is that the most wicked thing we can do as human beings is reject God. Everything else is just symptoms or reflections of our rejection. Everything. And we all probably have differing opinions on what the most heinous sin on earth looks like. But to God, it looks like rejection. 
The worst day for the unrepentant will be the day they stand before their creator and be reminded of their rejection as they are judged. And according to the words of Jesus here, it's going to be a bad day. In fact, I was thinking this week, it's going to be the worst day in their life. And from that day on, it's going to be repeat in eternity. Verse 25, and then Jesus prayed, because that's often what I do when I condemn people. You're all going to hell! Let's pray. <laughs> Here's what Jesus says in his prayer. Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever. And thank you for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. In other words, to those who don't think they need God, they will never find God. But to those who are humble, Jesus says it pleases the Father to reveal himself. Verse 27, my Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father. I love this picture of perfect intimacy, perfect unity between the Father and the Son. And no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. In John 14, Jesus says, if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. But don't miss this. We only see him because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. That's, that's truth enough just to break out into worship there, right? If you are saved this morning, it's because God in heaven on his throne found it pleasing to open your eyes to know him. Everything we know about God has been revealed to us. That's why we should always be asking, always be asking for God to open our eyes to see him better and open our hearts to understand him more. Jim just stood up here a while ago and opened our service by praying that open our hearts, open our eyes. Jesus said it like this. You just keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find me. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Now, in our American cultures, we read that through the context, so I can ask for anything, as long as it's in Jesus' name. Now, Jesus is saying, no, no, you just keep asking and seeking and knocking for me, and you will find me. Let me ask this question. Is there any area in your life that you are limiting God because you think you are too wise or too clever for him? Ask the Spirit this morning to reveal areas where we are depending on our own wisdom and our own power to get us through the day. By the way, you would, you would think, well, that's not me. I'm not the too clever and the too wise. But in the moments that we think that we can live life without Jesus, we are the too clever and the too wise. And then we ask the Spirit to give us a childlike faith. Faith that's constantly with our, 
our arms up, wanting our father to hold us and our mother to nurture us. John reminds us in John 15, apart from him, we can do some things. Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing. You got out of bed today because God gave you the power to get out of bed that you did. You put your clothes on and thank you for doing that and coming to church. <laughs> but you only did so because God willed it. You will only make it to lunch today because God wills it. You will only rest tonight because God, you will only, hey, that breath right there, it's only because God allowed it. Apart, the moment God says no, we're done. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Verse 28. After the prayer, Jesus says, come to me. We know this passage, it's very, very famous. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble, and I am gentle at heart, thank God. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. But notice here in the text who Jesus is inviting to come. He's inviting the weary and the heavy burdened. In other words, if you don't have it all together this morning, if you are not okay this morning, then you are exactly who Jesus is inviting to come. But you don't understand how heavy of a burden. I don't. But Jesus does, and he's inviting you to come. This is the good news of the gospel, by the way. What's so good news about the gospel? There is hope for the restless. And it is found in the yoke of Christ. Just as two oxen are yoked together so that they can work in unison, those of us who put our trust in Jesus become yoked to him. To be yoked to Christ means, one, that we are teachable. Jesus says, come to me and let me teach you. He is the teacher. He is the master. We are the student. It means we allow Christ to lead us as we follow him in humble submission. Two, it means that we trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. There is no condemnation for those yoked to Christ. I love one of my favorite passages, and I, I wish I would have known this passage existed when I was a teenager. I'll share more about that in a moment. This has become one of the most encouraging passages in all the scripture for a legalist, for a recovering legalist. Colossians 1, 21, Paul says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet, now, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy 
and you are blameless, as you stand before him without a single fault. And if you struggle with that text, as I struggle with that text, you're still needing God to reveal his grace and his mercy and his love to you. Because if you've come in here saying, I don't deserve his love, you're right. I don't deserve his forgiveness, you're right. And God hasn't reconciled us because we deserve it. And God hasn't reconciled us because we have earned it. God has reconciled us through his son, Jesus. So I don't get to stand before him holy because I had a good holy week. I did not. You go to the Soto football game, you cannot think holy thoughts. I have. Uh, we're online. And then worse, I'm a Mizzou Tigers fan, and so I watched them yesterday, and I'm like, I just need one team in my life that knows how to win. Bad thoughts. Bad thoughts. And yet, I'm so thankful that my status, my positioning in relationship to God is not dependent upon how I react at football games or how I react to life. It is dependent on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Amen. And I get to stand there blameless and none of us are today. Oh, man, if you think you're blameless, you're not. I'm not blameless. Hey, we could spend the, we could stay here all day, couldn't we, sharing our faults. And yet God says we're blameless because Jesus was blameless. Without a single fault, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. When you stand before God, drenched in the blood of Jesus, faultless, blameless, and holy. But notice this, verse, first part of verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away. Don't drift away. Listen, have you ever helped a group of people carry something really, really heavy? And then it's on three, one, two, three, and you pick it up and everybody grunts and you realize, uh-oh, my, my part's not that heavy. But you have to fake it, right? <laughs> because you don't want to make them feel like they're... So everybody else is carrying the load and you're just kind of walking through and you don't want to get done and you're like, oh man, that was tough. And you're like, it wasn't really that tough. Yeah. That's, that's why Christ's yoke is light because Jesus carried the load. He picked up our slack. The reason this is such good news for us is because although we live in a restless world, there is rest to be found. We can discover rest for our restless hearts by embracing two truths from this text. Number one, rest is found in Jesus alone. This is what Jesus was reminding John the Baptist of last week in his moment of doubt. Jesus reminding him that nobody else had done what Jesus was doing. Nobody else had fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy about the promised Messiah. Nobody else had lived a perfect life. Nobody else had died and came back to life victorious over sin and death. Nobody, listen church, nobody else has done for you what Jesus has done for you. Nobody else has died on a cross for you. Nobody else has taken your sins upon themselves. Nobody else has given you their righteousness. Jesus says, come to me. 
all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Nobody else, nothing else can give our souls rest like Jesus gives our souls rest. But there is no rest if we do not accept the invitation to come to him. You can't come sing some songs about Jesus and leave here in rest. And you cannot come and just hear truths about Jesus and leave in rest. You must lay yourselves in the presence of Jesus and rest. This is true initially in, in that none of us can find rest for our sinfulness apart from the salvation in Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, right? There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Christ. But it's also true continually because our hearts are constantly tempted to worry. Our hearts are constantly tempted to doubt. Our hearts are constantly tempted to rebel against our creator. Or is it just me? You see, we don't have to partake in some great sinful act to experience restlessness. We just need to disfellowship our hearts from the presence of God. I am convinced that the church that still looks and acts like the world does so because of one of two reasons. Number one, they are not the church. That's Matthew 7, 21. Jesus tells us that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Not everyone in the church building is of the church body. We need to understand that. But number two, they could be Christians, but are out of fellowship with Christ. Meaning, they are in Christ, but they're out of step with Christ. And we've all experienced that. The only distinction between the church and the unchurched is the spirit of God indwelling us. That's it. If we lack fellowship with the Spirit of God, of course we are going to experience the same restlessness of the world. But the church should look different. And the church should act different. And the church should react differently. The church shouldn't worry. And the church shouldn't doubt. And the church shouldn't be controlled by addictions. And yet, here we are, struggling with all of those things. Why? Because we refuse to consistently rest in God's presence. We exchange God's rest for a counterfeit that leaves us more restless. We all do that. Every single one of us. Genuine soul rest can only be found in Jesus. That's why we do whatever it takes to be in his presence. We don't read and study God's word so you can get a check mark by your to-do list and feel better about yourself. We do so because in doing so, we're staying in fellowship with our creator. There is no substitute for God's word in our lives. Not church attendance. Not, well, I feel God in nature. Great. You still got to get in the word. If nature was enough, he wouldn't have given us the living word. Giving your tithes is not enough. Nothing. There's not a good deed good enough that can replace 
God's word to us. That's why we gather in this place. We, we sing about the truths of Jesus. We preach about the truths of Jesus. We take communion and we testify together that Jesus is our only rest because we need reminders of that. Because we come in here sometimes restless and we're like, oh, nuts. I'm trusting in something else again. I've, I've, I've embraced another counterfeit God in my life that's leaving me empty and unsatisfied. And it's in the singing of the truth and the preaching of the truth and the testifying of the truth that we are reminded, oh, my heart is out of line with God. I've got to come back to him. The more we rest in God's presence and avoid the world, the more restful our soul becomes. As I wrote that, I thought, what would happen to our faith? I'm preaching to me. If we turned off social media for the week and just got in the word, turned off the news for a week and just got in the word, we would probably leave the house less restless. Number one, rest is found in Jesus alone. Number two, rest is the fruit of repentance. I want us to see the connection between the invitation from Jesus to rest in him at the end of the chapter with his condemnation earlier for those unwilling to repent. You see, repentance is the short-term definition here. Repentance is the changing of our mind, heart, and actions towards God in sin. That's not the full definition, but that's the journey definition for this morning. Repentance is the changing of our mind, heart, and actions towards God and sin. Repentance, I said this, repentance is confession that we often look elsewhere for soul rest either in our beliefs or in our behaviors, and then it's turning back to Jesus alone for that rest. I love this passage, and he, again, for a recovering legalistic, this is great stuff if you need to write it down. Hebrews 10, 10, the writer of Hebrews, the author says this, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. The moment we find life in Christ, we find rest for life. There is nothing else we must accomplish more to be right with God than to receive Christ. When we receive the Son, we get the affirmation of the Father. Hebrews 10, 14. This is right up there with first, or Colossians 1, by the way. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made. Here's what that means. Even though our hearts have found eternal rest in the finished work of Christ, we are still prone to look elsewhere for temporary rest, aren't we? Can you, just here in this moment, this morning, can you identify some of those counterfeits that you are tempted to turn and run to in place of Christ? Our eternal positioning with Jesus is not what is in danger in these moments. It's our fellowship with him. I miss that growing up. Every time I made a mistake, I just assumed I was out of line with God. And if I was to die in that moment, I would go to hell. Yeah. Miserable time. Miserable, miserable way to try to be a Christian. 
And I never understood the difference out of being out of step in fellowship and yet still being positionally secure. Mm. It is possible to be positionally good and at the same time be relationally separated. And so here's what I want to do in closing. Give me 10 minutes. I want to say two things about repentance that is so important here. If we're ever going to be men and women who live with restful souls in a restless world. Number one, this repentance must become a normal practice in the life of a Christian. Repentance must be a normal practice in the life of a Christian. Repentance should become a normal rhythm, a normal daily rhythm in our lives, constantly comparing our beliefs and our behaviors to who God is and what he has done. Nothing, I, I believe this, nothing hurts our hearts from resting more than hidden sin and shame. Experience that. The longer we hold off on repenting, the more restless we become. That's why you get to a place, you say something, or you do something, and go, I, I never thought I would say that. I never thought I would do that. It's because you have spent so much time practicing fellowship outside of the presence of God, and you've become so comfortable not being in fellowship and intimacy with him that you have lost all idea of what it means to rest in him, and you're so restless. And when we, hey, church, when we get restless, we're as mean as the world. Christians, here, here's a really popular thing that's going on in our culture today, and it's only going to get worse. You'll hear this, Christians deconstructing their faith. You hear that? You hear that, especially in, like, lots of popular Christian musicians and, and pastors. Well, I don't know if they're starting to doubt what they believed, and, and the, the, the trendy cliche is they're deconstructing their faith. And I believe anyone who ever says they're deconstructing their faith are either unbelievers. I, I have that theory. I think there's a lot of people that um, have ridden the coattail of the church. And as the culture becomes more aggressive against the church, they're going to, I'm out. Because they never were in. So they're unbelievers riding the coattails or they're unrepentant believers. That's it. I'm deconstructing my faith. He said, well, are you an unbeliever or are you just unrepentant? Because that's what's going on in our hearts when we do that. Jesus' invitation to come and rest is an open invitation to come and repent. I love that. There should not be a day go by that we are not repenting and realigning our hearts to God's heart. Not a day. Because there's not a day that we're not out of line with God's heart. We're prone to wander, the song says, right? Repentance must be a normal part of the Christian's everyday life. And for that to happen, number two, and then I'm done. And I, this is so important. Repentance must be normalized in the life of the church. Repentance must be a normal part of the Christian's life, but repentance must be normalized in the life of the church. One of the greatest complaints that the world hurls against towards the church is this, we're hypocrites. And we've got to own some of that. 
but the greatest tools that we have been given to combat hypocrisy is, these are three really dirty words, vulnerability, confession, and repentance. You want to silence the world from the hypocrite argument? Become vulnerable? Be transparent? Confess your sins and repent from them. I want people to know it's okay to be here and not be okay. And that only happens as we show our vulnerability of not being okay all the time. I wish there was an easier way to do that rather than admitting that sometimes I'm not okay. But everything is not always sunshine and rainbows. So the church has got to stop acting like it when we gather. And it's important that we see and hear that. It's important that our children see and hear that, that it becomes normalized in their lives. I wish I would have saw that more as a kid growing up in church. Most, most of the time, I already mentioned this, but most of the time in my young Christian life, I was convinced that I was the only one screwed up in my church. I thought everybody else had found the secret to the successful Christian life because nobody else seemed to struggle with reading their Bible, and I hated it. <laughs> like, oh, I don't want to read. I'm not disciplined enough. No one else seemed to struggle with going to church. I didn't want to go. Nobody else seemed to struggle with lust. Nobody else seemed to have a problem with cussing or loving people. <laughs> and then I grew up and became a pastor. I just realized that everybody is screwed up. Some are just better at hiding it than others. Every single one of us is perfect who are believers, the true church. Every single one of us are perfect in Christ, but none of us get it perfect, do we? Jesus got it perfect because he knew we never would. So why do we keep pretending that we do? You've been coming to church 5, 10. Some of you might have been going to church for 25, 35, 40 years. And every week you're asked, how are you? And you've lied for 25 or 30 years and you keep saying, I'm fine. You've never had a bad day, according to your response to people asking, how's it going? It's going great. We are not okay, and that is okay because Jesus loves us anyway. Even me, even you. But I've doubted. So did John. And Jesus said, he's the greatest. But Jesus, he doubted you. I know that. I knew that the moment I met him in Mary and Elizabeth's womb. I knew he was going to prepare the way, and I knew he would doubt. I knew that to the day that I met him on the Jordan's bank. I knew that before he ever stepped into prison that he would doubt me. And Jesus knew that you would doubt him. And Jesus knew that you would struggle to want to read your Bible. And he knew that you would struggle to want to go to church. And he knew that there would be so many struggles in this world that pulls the tension, that pulls you away from his presence. And sometimes we get distracted and sometimes we get restless. And he knows all of that. He knew all of that before you knew it. In fact, he knows what's coming to 
tempt you this week to be restless. And he loved you anyway. And you know what? He knows that you're going to give in to some of that restlessness. And you're going to say things. And you're going to do things. And you're going to think things. He knew that when he went to the cross. We are not okay. And that's okay because Jesus loves us anyway. And maybe someone... This is why it's important that we become vulnerable, transparent, that we normalize repentance. Because maybe someone needs to see your mess today. Because it's in your mess that their mess will meet the Messiah. You know this to be true. You are more, when you see somebody else struggle in their Christian life, that comforts you, doesn't it? It's like when you walk into somebody's dirty house and they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, don't be sorry. I'm thankful. Thank you, because our house is worse than this. I just, I'm glad somebody else lives this way. All right? When we see how messed up we are, it's not that we want to like, yeah, ha, 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 see that mess? Great. You deserve to feel a little bit of that. No, no, no. It's like, I am normal. Sin is a real struggle for every single... Restlessness really is a problem for the entire church. And the quicker we say, you know what? No more hiding that. We're sinners. And yet, we're blameless. We're sinners and yet somehow we're holy. We're sinners and yet we get to stand before God faultless because of the finished work of Jesus. You see... I believe this in my own heart. I'm rambling. I am done. I believe that when I decide to hide, hide my sin and hide my shame, I don't really believe that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient. When repentance is normalized, the devil loses and God gets the glory. That's why we are intentionally ending our services lately with communion and a song. It's, it's time for us to just take a moment and reflect on the truths that's been presented from the very first song, through the testimonies, through the sermon. And then we get together and we do communion and reminded of his body broken and his blood shed for us. We can ask questions like, are our hearts aligned to him? And, and then we get to repent and, and rejoice. We get to repent and rejoice in the goodness and the glory of God. You want to find rest in a restless world. Learn to live a life of repentance, living in the presence of God. For where there is repentance, there's rest. Let's pray. Father, we enter this time of communion and reflection asking you to show us where our hearts do not align with yours this morning. Not so that we can feel guilty or cause people to feel shame, so that we can lay them before you, take our heavy burdens and take those heavy cares and we can lay them at your feet as we preach to our restless souls this morning. I don't need to be restless Jesus has taken upon himself every sin I have, I am, or I will ever commit. He was broken for it. 
I'm not going, I'm not, listen, I'm not going to dwell in my shame because his beating for my sins was sufficient. And I'm not going to hide my sin any longer because his death on the cross and resurrection victorious over that sin was sufficient. So we declare that through communion this morning. And God, if there's a place that you are, by your spirit, just showing us that we are not living in obedience to you, that we, our hearts are not aligned to yours, and we are living in rebellion, oh God, may this be a moment this morning. May this be a beautiful moment of repentance. Open our eyes to see you. Open our hearts to receive and obey you. Help us find rest in you alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're going to, you're invited to come to the Lord's table. There's communion. Three places up front, and there's a station in the back. Grab one of the cups and, and group up. And everybody in the group, uh, somebody in that group, just take a moment to, to thank God for his broken body. Just maybe on behalf of the group, say, hey, if you're here this morning and you're hiding your sins, you can bear them. It doesn't mean you have to have full confession time in your small group. Just, hey, you can lay them at the feet of Jesus. He's inviting you this morning through his broken body and his bloodshed to come and lay your heavy burdens. And then if you need to just find a place to pray, you can do so. We're just going to take a few minutes and end our time as a family at the Lord's table preaching to our doubt, preaching to our restlessness that Jesus is our rest. Amen.